0: So it's a great pleasure to introduce um, Professor Jiang Wang. He will be giving the uh, BP lecture today. So Jiang uh, is a professor of finance at uh, the Sloan School of Management at MIT. He um, has um, received his PhD from Wharton at, uh, in 1990. Xiang is uh, one of the leading uh, uh, finance uh, theorists of his generation. He um, has done a, a very important work on uh, Uh, asset asset, uh, pricing and uh, uh, investment management. In particular, um, uh, his research has mainly focused on understanding the impact of market imperfections on uh, asset prices, trading strategies, investment management, and risk management. What he has, uh, um, um, sort of what he did in his thesis is some very important work on how uh, information asymmetries, so different information held by different market participants, uh, affects uh, the properties of the price process in the market and affects also uh, trading volume. And uh, one, uh, this research sort of led to ma- ma- many insights. One of the ins- major insights that um, it uh, led to is that uh, uh, one can learn lots of information about the market by looking at properties of the trading volume. So prior to that, uh, it was believed that prices, all the information that one should look for to understand what happens in the market is prices but um, so of young thought but how important um, is the inf- uh, trading vo- volume in conveying information about what happens in the market so um, uh, what he's doing more recently is uh, looking at uh, implications of other market imperfections on uh, uh, market performance such as short sale constraints or um, uh, the cost of different uh, market participants to uh, trade in the market so today he will um, talk to us about um, liquidity, asset prices, and uh, market efficiency. Ah, and uh, just a few things—sorry, <laughs> a few things about the uh, procedure, uh, procedure. So the lecture will be for about 45 minutes. Then uh, there will be about 15 to 20 minutes of questions, so Q&A. And uh, then there will be a reception that uh, will be on the sixth floor in this of this building. All right. Now, introduce. <laughs>
1: Thank you, uh, Dimitri, for that uh, kind uh, introduction. Um, I wouldn't want this, I call this a lecture, I think. I hope that it will just be a, a discussion of some uh, thoughts I've uh, collected um, on uh, liquidity. Uh, I should start by saying that it's a great privilege to uh, have this opportunity to give this uh, uh, BP lecture. And I uh, would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, my colleagues at uh, LSE uh, for their uh, hospitality and... Uh, intellectual stimulus uh, during my visit this term as the uh, the BP visiting uh, professor. <coughs> and I'm uh, particularly uh, honored actually to have this opportunity to discuss uh, issues related to liquidity uh, because LSC actually is one of the world centers where um, a lot of important work uh, on liquidity uh, has been done and also still emergent. Uh, and actually uh, from uh, my personal perspective, uh, my, uh, my interest uh, in this topic is not only inspired by um, uh, the previous work done here, but also uh, it was um, stimulated by a conference I uh, I guess, I attended in uh, uh, September 2004, 2003, sorry, actually. And uh, David Webb, I guess, was organizing uh, a conference on liquidity for um, the, uh, the financial uh, market group. And uh, he listed one of my papers on, you know, irrationality. And uh, when I got uh, the request, I was a little bit embarrassed because I didn't see a very uh, direct uh, uh, connection. But nonetheless, uh, I accepted because, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to visit LSE uh, because of all the fun memories I had for all the past visits. Um, <coughs> and it turned out to be a very interesting conference, and the papers actually uh, tackled uh, issues related to liquidity from uh, a wide range of angles. I guess mine is probably at the very far end. Uh, so, I, you know, I certainly benefited a lot um, than contributed um, sitting in that conference, and I hope that actually uh, some of the work I uh, present today can uh, pay that debt uh, in part. <clears throat> I should also mention that actually, um, even though, uh, you know, most of the, um, uh, the stuff that I'll be uh, discussing today is based on a joint work with several co-authors, including... Uh, Jennifer Huang at uh, UT Austin, uh, Andrew Lowe at the MIT, and uh, Harry Maskey, uh used to be at Yale, now uh, running a hedge fund. Uh, that's one of the depressing things, actually, would be keeping losing uh, colleagues to the industry, but I guess that's also a sign of a success of the field, I right? assume. So, but also, I want to mention, that actually, um, some of the things I'll we'll be discussing are also influenced by uh, my discussions here with uh, several colleagues. Um, Ron Anderson and uh, Sudiptu um David Webb, and of course, uh, Dimitri, and uh, who has been an old colleague and, and a friend. <coughs> of course, the usual disclaimers apply. So now, actually, let me get back to uh, the topic that I want to, uh, want to discuss, <coughs> which is uh, a liquidity. Let me just say a couple words about why, you know, this uh, is something that uh, people care a lot about. <coughs> Uh, the, uh, I should start by saying a couple words about what I mean by uh, liquidity because um, liquidity is uh, a word that's, that's too useful to be kind of defined by a single meaning. Um, and uh, it's probably fair to say that uh, its meaning is kind of a liquid itself. Uh, and I, I remember reading, a, uh, you know, uh, Sir Hicks uh, presidential address in 62 commenting, on the notion of liquidity, which was formally introduced, I guess, by Keynes, as uh, many things in the finance economics. Uh, he was saying that actually at its birth, uh, liquidity uh, is already showing its dangerous tendency to be uh, uh, slippery in its meaning. Um, <clears throat> so I guess, uh, you know, I would probably uh, clarify a little bit the, 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 the notion that I will be using, and uh, I guess to be on solid grounds, I actually be following uh, the original notion actually um, described by uh, by Kant, which is uh, roughly speaking you know how easy it is to trade an asset i guess in his words would be um uh, sort of real what do you call it uh, let me let me try to uh, quote uh, more precisely the uh <clears throat> I guess it's a, it's a realizable, more certainly realizable at short notice without loss. I'll come back a little bit later to try to, you know, uh, be a little bit more precise about uh, the, the, the way I would like to think about it and uh, the particular, the meaning I'll be using during my discussion today. But uh, for the moment, I guess it just refers to how easy it is actually for uh, somebody to trade an asset in, in financial markets. I would call this sort of a more finance notion of liquidity. It somewhat differs from uh, the notion of liquidity people use in macroeconomics, which is often re- referred to the total amount of money, let's say in an economy or in, in a portfolio. <clears throat> of course, these two are fairly closely related, but I'm going to take a slightly a, a narrow focus, focus today. So why do we care about market liquidity? Of course, it, it describes how easy it is for us to trade assets to the extent that actually people need to trade assets to achieve optimal allocation of their, their assets or their resources. Um, liquidity is important because it would facilitates these transactions and uh, with a more liquid market, uh, the assets would more be more easily get to those who actually are willing to pay a high price or have a high demand for them. <coughs> And uh, there are various ways to sort of try to quantify this also, although none of them is satisfactory. Uh, if you look at, let's say, you know, all the, uh, the exchanges, the old and the new, um, all different forms um, ranging from, you know, s- centralized exchanges to OTC market to all the electronic forms of these markets, of course, their main aim is actually try to facilitate these transactions, namely actually to uh, provide a liquid uh, market for these uh, traded securities. Uh, on top of that, if you look at the financial sector, a big chunk of that is actually in the business of providing liquidity. And I would include in that, let's say, uh, dealers, um, you know, trading desks of investment banks, and certainly hedge funds. Uh, let me just use that one segment as an example. The total amount of assets on the management uh, by hedge funds collectively is, you know, exceeding $1.2 trillion. And and uh, in many ways, actually, their activities can be viewed as providing liquidity, namely buying assets that are sort of cheap. And, uh, of course, nothing is cheap. Here uh, cheap means they're less liquid and sometimes financed by actually selling short assets that are a little bit <coughs> uh, more expensive or more liquid. So from that point of view, actually, they're really providing liquidity to the market. So if you take that sector, let's say, you know, $1 trillion dollars, on uh, average, they're earning about 10 percent, at least so far. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen down the road. Uh, so that's actually about a hundred billion dollars of profit. And of course, that's not for free, uh, but nonetheless, you could view that as sort of profits from making the market or providing liquidity to the market. <clears throat> um, so from that point of view, actually, um, it is a, a, a very important function uh, of the, uh, the financial markets to provide the liquidity, to provide a liquid um, a channel for people to trade assets. <coughs> of course, uh, you know when people uh, trade these assets, they are driven by their demand and uh, presumably their willingness to supply um, as they rea- react to market prices. <coughs> so, in that you know, in that uh, perspective, uh, the liquidity or the easiness to uh, trade assets will also affect demand and supply of these assets. Um, for example, uh, if you're thinking about holding a very illiquid asset, um, knowing that you may not be able to get out of it, um, you may actually be very uh, reluctant to have a large position in it. Right? So, to the extent that demand and supply would influence prices. When I mention prices, actually I refer to two aspects. One is the level of prices and also the other is actually time, vari- time variation in these prices, and liquidity will also, of course, have a significant impact on that, to the extent, actually, it's the asset prices that are guiding uh, the allocation of capital or resources, and, of course, we care very much about um, uh, liquidity for that reason. I guess the other perspective I would like to take on liquidity is also, um, you know, a view that's widely shared among policymakers, at least, and uh, by some market participants, participants as well, which is that liquidity actually is very important in affecting market stability. Okay. And uh, later on, we'll come back to talk a few examples, and uh, you know, the uh, when we actually run into let's say market crisis, the ones I would be talking about will be the you know let's say the '87 stock market crash and '98 LTCM crisis. Uh, <clears throat> it's we believe to be that actually the liquidity or the lack of it actually during these crises have contributed to large dislocations in the market and also they have contributed to the slow recovery uh, of the market so for, so so you know to that extent actually we would also want to care about how uh, liquidity um, affect the market stability and hopefully find ways to manage that <coughs> And uh, in particular, in light of policy uh, discussions, of course, we would have to uh, think about um, whether or not the market actually functions uh, on itself in an efficient way in terms of providing liquidity. If not, um, is there any uh, room for policy uh, interventions uh, to the extent actually help to improve the efficiency of the market? <clears throat> so I guess these are sort of the uh, uh, some of the reasons, actually, that would make us think about liquidity. Um, both from a sort of more macro perspective and also from a uh, functional perspective, we're thinking about actually trading and investing or managing uh, risk uh, in a marketplace. The I thought that actually before we get into um, <coughs> some formal discussions, maybe we can actually look at some of the, uh, the so-called liquidity events, um, which... Um, Suggest to us actually, liquidity might be contributing to large uh, market dislocations, and also talk about some of the, uh, the government interventions uh, during these um, event periods. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I could have a long list of them. Uh, I thought I actually would focus on just a few uh, more recent ones. So, the, the first one to talk a little bit about is actually the 87 stock market crash, as we know, actually, <clears throat> on Black Monday. Um, in October of uh, 87 the stock market dropped you know 20 23% in one day uh, which was just one point less than actually the market crash before the great depression so that was actually a, 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 you know quite a, a significant drop and uh, you know of course you, people have various stories about this uh, it could be because of a correction <coughs> due to some uh, over optimism uh, and so on. But uh, nonetheless uh, people have uh, attributed to the magnitude of that um, in part to actually a lack of liquidity. For example, during uh, during the Monday, uh, there was a huge uh, selling pressure uh, from program trading as well as some uh, portfolio insurance strategies and the daily volume actually exceeded three times the normal uh, volume. The total uh, is about $5 billion at that time at, the, at that market level actually that was uh, quite a substantial uh, magnitude. And uh, we can also see, uh, if we were to look at various liquidity measures, um, how the, uh, the liquidity in the market actually uh, dried up. <coughs> this is uh, the, the price path, and here's the trading volume. Of course, we can see that, actually, um, during the, the crash period, the volume uh, showed up and uh, which um, sort of eat up the uh, amount of liquidity in the market and actually triggered (coughs) potentially further uh, decrease in the market. If we were to look at actually um, some liquidity measures in the market, uh, there are a whole bunch of them. Uh, The one actually I plotted here is sort of a a measure called a price impact. That is actually when you trade in the market for a given amount, how much you're gonna move the price. If the market is very liquid, you can trade large amounts without really moving the price. If you go back to Ken's definition, this means that you can actually realize uh, the value without suffering much of a loss. However, it, when you trade, uh, the price is going to move against you. Uh, that indicates that actually there's uh, less of a liquidity, and the more the price move, moves against you, that would imply the market is actually less liquid. So this is a measure basically looking at sort of the, uh, the percentage change in price given uh, a, a trade size. Um, and this is, this is a measure popularized by uh, Yaakov Amihut. So what's plotted here is basically um, the army uh, fund the, uh, the measure, and you can see actually during the, the crash, uh, it showed up uh, drastically, and of course, uh, afterwards, it quiet down a little bit. <clears throat> Why do I actually want to call this uh, a liquidity event, at least liquidity contributed to this? Actually, uh, part of the reason is that the price drop, okay? maybe in part, is due to a reaction, uh, so sort a of correction in a market's expectation about future prospects of the market, but maybe also in part due to this large selling pressure. Because if that was the case, then we would expect actually people to jump in to take advantage of the dislocation in the market price, and presumably the price would actually recover. And uh, there's actually, um, you know, various uh, uh, indications of that. One particular actually sector I would like to look at, in addition to the amount of capital that actually flowed into the market after the crash from, uh, other investors, uh, one particular type of investor actually affirms themselves. So what's plotted here is actually the firm's repurchase of their own shares. So this suggests that actually these firms believe that actually their price got so depressed that actually they want to buy back. <clears throat> and actually they, uh, two things actually are worth noting. One is, that of course, they start buying back their own shares, believing that actually that's a um, profitable opportunity. By the way, if you to talk to some, Old CEOs who have been around long enough, and uh, when they talk about their share <laughs> repurchase program, this is one of sort of their, uh, you know, successful stories. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that actually, even though the capital does flow into the market, even from the firms themselves, and, and in this case, we could actually view the firms as sort of buyers of last resort for their own <laughs> stocks. The other thing we should notice is that actually the flow is very uh, slow. It's not that 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 says that. It's not that they start just buying right away and actually it took them quite a while to uh, implement those repurchases. So that's something actually we'll come back to uh, in a little bit. <coughs> and, uh, of course, uh, the uh, other, than uh, you know, fundamental reasons, actually there is uh, quite a bit of belief that actually uh, this crash has caused some uh, shortage in the liquidity, <coughs> which... Further exacerbate the uh, the market dislocation, so the uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank actually took uh, immediate action, tried to uh, mitigate the situation, in particular providing uh, actual liquidity actually to the market. <coughs> so it, one thing it did is actually try to carry large scale open, uh, open market operations, and actually if you look at the uh, uh, the rate <coughs> from uh, October to November, within a month, actually dropped by one percentage point. And I can sort of imagine how much actual liquidity they have pumped into the market. Uh, they've also took some other, uh, uh, taken some other actions. For example, they have um, extended the amount of securities they can lend um, to financial institutions. Uh, they've also communicated to various investment banks to remind them that they should try very hard to ensure the liquidity in the market. Right. so um, um, if we look at this actually I would uh, uh, this was suggest that actually um, there is this uh, belief that actually liquidity contributed to these uh, market crisis and also certain actions uh, were taken um, to um, uh, to manage that <coughs> the The other uh, event I would like to uh, talk a little bit about is the uh, 1997 uh, long-term capital management uh, crisis. Uh, LTCM actually um, is one of the largest hedge funds um, (coughs) at that time, and uh, they had about $4.9 billion under management uh, in May of 98, and uh, their tracker record actually um, looked pretty well. (coughs) And... uh, what happened is actually during the uh, May and June of 98 actually they ever suffered uh, some unanticipated losses of course most losses are not anticipated but this is a little in terms of magnitude uh, uh, it was a little bit larger than what they have uh, experienced had experienced up to that point uh, I think it was roughly eight uh, percent in May and uh, a little bit over ten percent in June and July was a relatively a flat month for them <coughs> so Then uh, came, uh, I think it was uh, the 17th of August, the uh, Russia announced that actually they would default on the government bonds, both denominated in uh, foreign currencies as well denominated in in, um, the local currency. And even though the size of the default actually um, wasn't big by any means, um, it actually triggered some uh, reactions in the market, in particular for the uh, LTCM actually on the 21st, which is a, a Friday, they suffered a total loss of over $500 million just in one day. And uh, and the losses mainly actually uh, come from uh, a change in the swap spread, okay? So one of their big trades is actually to short uh, treasury securities 10 years behind, and at the same time, so when they it, when short, they have to pay the interest on that. At the same time, actually, they are long, uh, the, uh, the fixed rate swaps, so receiving um, the uh, the fixed payment, which is about, um, as you can see, on me- uh, regular times about 40 basis point. <coughs> but uh, during this time, actually, the swap spread uh, drastically uh, increased, and this of course, uh, uh, caused huge losses on the already fixed uh, swap payments <coughs> they're receiving. So, um, as as we can see that as the uh, the the, uh, the swap spreads. Um, increased, they have suffered losses on these trades, and uh, of course they have to unwind some of their positions because actually um, more claros were called on their positions, and during the process, actually market moved uh, against them. And uh, this also is another measure of uh, liquidity in the market, which is the spread between the the on-the-run treasury security and off-the-run. So these are two securities issued by U.S. Treasury with very similar cash flows, and yet uh, the on the ones that got recently issued, so they're the most liquid, and the off the are the less liquid ones. And typically, you see a spread, you know, a couple of basis points, uh, but during this period, it actually really shooted up. So for people who do convergence trades, which the, which involves actually selling the more expensive on-the-round securities and the buying the, uh, the off-the-round, uh, all of a sudden, the price is actually moved against them. <clears throat> and this, you can imagine that maybe just a, a, a demise of one hedge fund, but actually, um, it um, you know it triggered a lot of um, mm-hmm. crisis in other parts of the uh, the, the market, uh, not in just the in the, uh, the swap market, but also in the treasury market. If you look at actually the spread between uh, bid ask spread for treasury securities, you can see they actually shoot up uh, uh, quite a bit. So this means that actually it becomes very hard to uh, buy and sell securities. You have to pay a huge spread. During that period, and uh, this, of course, is further exacerbated accessi- by uh, the flows uh, in the market. Uh, this, the the, uh, the the blue charts um, show the capital net capital flow into funds who are following strategies similar to LTCM. So you can see. It. I apologize that the time scale is a little bit uh, misaligned. So here is basically around '98, and the reason is that I actually want to show a little bit of a longer history. So during these crises, actually, investors start pulling money out of these funds, and of course, that forced them to further liquid their positions, and of course, uh, that make the prices move further against them. And this is at a time when these hedge funds, who started as liquidity providers by taking advantage of these spreads, all of a sudden become liquidity demanders. They actually want the liquidity, and it's exactly at that time that investors are running away from them, so they actually uh, they uh, become even Sure, you know, shorter-handed, actually, in terms of uh, capital uh, accessible to them. <coughs> and this is not just, you know, uh, the uh, the market on the, uh, the fixed income side. If you look at, actually, other markets, you know, I only have uh, the stock market here, but, you know, if you look at across the board, you would see similar things that it started affecting other uh, markets. For example, the stock market, you start to, uh, to tank. Um, and again, this is looking at the sort of the, pri- the liquidity or the, the price impact of a trade in the equities market also shoot up. That means that actually even in the equities market, it becomes very difficult to actually trade these uh, – to, uh, to trade. <clears throat> and uh, so this, of course, caused quite a bit of concern um, uh, in the market uh, as well as among policy uh, makers. And the worry is actually uh, further deterioration of the market across board actually would cause, you know, further dry up in the query. Actually, that might bring down uh, many other uh, institutions. Uh, although this time, it's kind of interesting that actually the New York Fed actually took a, a different tactic instead of actually injecting liquidity, uh, which would be hard for them to do, even though they have the mandate to actually directly lend to any financial institution they want, but they haven't done it uh, uh, yet. Uh, they can certainly lend money to depository uh, institutions. Uh, but, you know, LTCM is not one of those. So what they did actually is facilitated a... Uh, A discussion among some large investment banks, and many of them are actually LTCM's counterparties. Um, And finally, actually, these banks um, formed this consortium uh, which agreed to inject over $2 billion into LTCM, which actually helped to carry through the period so that it won't have to further liquidate the positions, further actually causing uh, the adverse price movement in the market. The, I want to also mention, uh, before I move on, I want to mention a couple of other things. One is actually Y2K. Um, this, uh, as we know, is actually when we um, switch uh, in that day to uh, year 2000, uh, there was a lot of worry about the computer system because actually a lot of computers would not be able to sort of, you know, change the, uh, the date automatically. So um, there was some uncertainty about how well the settlement system would actually uh, would perform. Uh, in, so if the, the concern is that actually if the settle, settlement system kind of misfunctions during that period, that would cause actually a lot of uh, shortage in liquidity. A lot of banks may not be able to actually settle uh, the transactions um, which would actually um, you know uh, reduce the, the total amount of liquidity in the market <clears throat> so in order to prevent that actually Fed in this time uh, institu- uh, took a, a different uh, policy tool, what they did is actually start issuing options to both the depository institutions and uh, the uh, dealers of treasury bonds. Okay. So for the depository institutions, they basically grant these institutions the option to borrow from the Fed during a period covering the, uh, uh, the Y2K uh, period, uh, 150 basis point above the prevailing Fed fund rate. Now, it is a pretty high exercise price, but the amount is unlimited. Right. Um, and then also sold options through um, through options to uh, bond dealers. Again, the option to borrow money at 150 basis point K, uh, basis point above uh, the fair fund rate. And the total amount they've sold is something like 480 million a billion dollars worth of these options. <coughs> Even though you could argue that these are you know out of money options, but nonetheless, the total amount is actually uh, quite large. So we can view this as a situation where there is some concern about a shortage of liquidity and uh, the Fed, the the, uh, the New York Fed, actually um, started issuing sort of contingency of liquidity by selling these options. The other event I will mention is actually 9-11. Of course, uh, that's that was a totally unanticipated event, and there was a big worry that actually uh, the uh, settlement system... Um, my malfunction due to uh, you know various uh, concerns, <clears throat> and uh, during that period, uh, Fed also stepped in actually, um, lend money um, with uh, quite significant magnitudes. On the 12th of September, uh, they actually uh, through the uh, open market operation, um, they actually injected 38 billion dollars of liquidity into the market, and it peaked at uh, on the uh, on the 14th. Uh, with a total amount of $81 billion. On top of that, actually, they removed any penalties or any overdraft uh, on the borrowing um, uh, <coughs> uh, through the, the uh, discount windows, and also they relaxed the, uh, the limits on the securities, that actually, they can lend to many financial institutions. Again, you know, this is, these are various actions uh, aimed at actually easing uh, the liquidity uh, in the market. So I guess, you know, uh, we could certainly talk more about these uh, events, but I think that the uh, uh, in general, uh, I guess the picture we get from this is that actually uh, liquidity is viewed as an important factor uh, in affecting uh, the the stability of the market and actually certainly uh, Mm -hmm. policies have been contemplated and sometimes implemented to actually ease the liquidity uh, in the market during these uh, crisis periods. Now, if we would actually look at, you know, the uh, <coughs> these uh, events that I mentioned and then try to gather some information, actually, about uh, liquidity. <coughs> Here's sort of a, a, a broad picture, at least, you know, part of it. One is actually when we look at across different markets, liquidity varies drastically uh, across different markets. Um, of course, I we don't yet have... Uh, a satisfactory measure of liquidity, Um, we could use various measures. Um, The price impact measure I I, uh, mentioned earlier was one. A trading volume is is another. Uh, So if we look at actually across different markets, the volume actually varies drastically. If you look at the FX market, the daily volume is something like $1.9 trillion. So if you look at the government bond market, the daily volume is something like $500 billion. Uh, stock market, even though we pay a lot of attention to it, uh, the volume is quite a bit smaller. Uh, for NYSE, it's in a range of uh, $75 billion a day. And then if you look go to, let's, let's say, look at the corporate bond market, um, it's actually quite a bit smaller. It's something like, for the U.S. corporate bond market, something like $14 billion. Right? Of course, you could say these are just total dollar amount. You might want to normalize them by some kind of, a, you know, amount, total amount uh, outstanding. Uh, but other than FX, which I'm not quite sure what denominator to use, but if you look at equity markets, bond markets, and so on, uh, you know, they, are not, they are sort of comparable in terms of all this magnitude. So that tells us that actually, um, if we look at the levels of liquidity, actually, uh, that's quite different across different markets. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, Number two, the liquidity actually varies over time, and as we have already seen, in particular, during times of crisis, it actually changed drastically. And, uh, you know, it is uh, sort of – a lot of people do think um, that the uh, liquidity actually is an important (laughs) factor um, in uh, affecting market stability, in particular, exacerbates um, uh, uh, the market dislocations during times of crisis. There are a few other things actually I should mention because this actually would help um, my discussion uh, later on. Uh, certainly, you know, at, at the micro level, we could look at the liquidity of a particular stock, a particular bond, and there's a lot um, to to be done there. Uh, but if you look at sort of the uh, at the more aggregate level, at the at the liquidity of, let's say, uh, overall markets for different Uh, asset classes. Those kind of uh, liquidity events, um, in particular sort of large fluctuations of liquidity, don't really happen that often. Um, uh, They happen infrequently. um, But nonetheless, when they occur, actually, uh, the magnitude-wise seems to be big. Okay, thank you. Also, the other thing that's quite interesting is one-sided. That is that typically, when these events occur, uh, we see large selling pressure. We see much less on the flip side. In other words, we don't necessarily see all of a sudden there's this huge rush of buying pressure driving up the prices. Now it's not that we don't see that, it's just that it seems like the speed of these two things are somewhat different. When it drops, it drops very quickly. While it goes up, maybe it takes a longer time. The other thing I want to emphasize a lot is actually uh, the, these liquidity events seem to be endo- endogenous. Namely, it's actually an uh, outcome of market activities uh, themselves. It's not due to some exogenous uh, macro news. <clears throat> and that's something actually uh, important to keep in mind. And they uh, tend to have this sy- systemic uh, nature, that is that actually when occurs in one market, it might be affecting other markets at the same time. The other thing I also mentioned, that uh, you know, they tend to be transitory. In other words, if you look at the, the impact of liquidity on prices, um, you know, let's say during 87 stock market crash or 98 LTCM uh, crisis, you know, you, you see the, the price drops and eventually kind of um, comes, comes back. <clears throat> now, this, you, some, some might argue that this is some, somewhat, you know, subjective. And uh, how do you know that eventually it's going to come back? All these large liquidity events, we don't have that many data points, all right? It's so sort of as if you listen to a, a forecast of the market. If they say the market's gonna crash, 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 if he or she says, you know, long enough, eventually it's gonna crash, all right? So uh, you might say that, that that may be the same thing that we're saying here, although I would like to argue that actually um, if we look at <coughs> uh, the data, in particular across different markets, we do have more data in supporting of that. So that I think that is an important uh, characteristic of the impact of liquidity on uh, on prices on the market. <clears throat> I would run quickly through some questions actually um, um, that come to mind when we uh, think about liquidity. Uh, the first thing, of course, is exactly what uh, is liquidity. And uh, I'll, I'll come back to uh, a slightly more um, concrete definition of this. And then the other thing is, whatever the liquidity uh, that you talk about, what determines uh, the demand and supply of it? For example, in 87 or 98, what triggered all these selling pressure? Uh, what's driving that? <clears throat> and, of course, um, given uh, the need uh, the, for liquidity, and the, we would have the supply, and presumably the supply uh, of liquidity would be determined by the cost of supplying liquidity, but exactly how? That's something, actually, um, we should uh, like to think about. And uh, I mentioned that actually in different markets, actually uh, the the liquidity level is quite different. And this must have something to do with the market structure. All these markets actually are organized differently. Foreign exchange markets are organized different from the stock markets, and which is somewhat different from the bond markets. So the question is, why are these markets organized in such a way? And how does that actually relate to the level of liquidity in these markets? The other thing uh, that's quite important actually, both for practitioners and also um, uh, for, for academics is that how does actually liquidity affect uh, asset prices, both in terms of levels. In other words, if you're comparing two assets, like on the wrong, off the treasury bond, you know, what determines that spread? Uh, but the other thing is also dynamics. Actually, how does liquidity affect um, the, uh, the dynamics of, of asset prices? Um, and uh, regarding the policy, of course, we do, uh, care about how does the liquidity affect uh, the efficiency of the market uh, to the extent actually the market may not, be, you know, fail to function efficiently, um, what would be the, uh, the policy rules. So let me actually <coughs> describe uh, briefly the, the, the notion of liquidity actually I'll be using. <coughs> and I'll start with actually this uh, definition of, of, of CANS. <coughs> Which is more realizable? I was pointed out that actually, I guess I should use the British spelling here, uh, use S instead of Z. Uh, as sure notice, without loss. Uh, I think actually the key here is without loss, meaning that actually if you want to sell something that's illiquid, you can always sell it. It's not that you cannot. You know, as long as you're willing to cut the price. Right? So I think that uh, how much price do you have to cut actually uh, would be the uh, uh, the key to uh, uh, to liquidity. <clears throat> when we think about liquidity, actually I would like to start with two, you know, basic uh, elements uh, that are important to, uh, to liquidity and then actually build up on that. One is that actually the liquidity certainly, um, is going to depend heavily on people's need to trade. If you don't have a lot of need to trade, you know, there's not much of a liquidity to, to talk about. But that by itself is not, it's not uh, sufficient. What's also important is the cost to trade. In other words, if people can be in the market at all times, uh, trade at no cost, then there's no issue about liquidity. Such a market, I would call it very liquid. It happens to be that's the notion of the market actually that was described in textbook, which is sort of like a town hall notion of market. Everybody buyer and sellers are collected together, they submit a demand and supply, and then you find a price, okay? In a market like that, there's no issue of liquidity. Whatever the, best, the price you're getting, that's the best, best price there is. Now, that's certainly not how my actual markets operate. How the actual market operates is that you only, at each point in time, you're only facing a subset of potential buy and sellers in the market. And why? Because it's costly to be in the market. When I say costly to be in the market, I didn't mean just to be physically present or be holding some of these assets, but rather standing by with sufficient amount of capital to be able to take the position or take off the position. Right? And it's costly to be involved in these kind of activities. And because of that, when you go to a market, you'll only be facing a partial supply or partial demand. Okay? So the price you're getting is going to be different from the price you could have got if everybody was there. I guess one example of that is like a real estate. If you want to sell a house, you know, it's very hard to collect all the potential buyers and sellers on a Sunday and let's say it's just auctioned off. That's not how the market operates. You just have to list it, and then you know one at a time, people come and, and look at it. And the price you can get would just be the price that person uh, is willing to pay. It may not be the best price. Okay, so that is a market where I think it's, you know, we don't have a lot of liquidity. <clears throat> but if you look at, let's say, you know, foreign exchange, and that is a market, you have a large number of traders with huge amount of capital committed. And uh, there, you know, whatever the price you're getting, actually, will be pretty close to whatever the best price you can get. So the notion, actually, I'll be using to, to measure liquidity is really the difference between these two prices, namely the price you can actually get in the market when, the mar- when trading is costly, when you're only facing a subset of buy and sellers, and compare that price to the price when everybody actually will be around. <coughs> so, uh, you know, this will be sort of the, uh, the notion of liquidity I'll be using, and as you can see, that actually this will be very much determined by the cost actually for people to trade uh, in the market. <coughs> So if we were to sort of use uh, this notion of liquidity, um, and then we can think about things that actually would uh, influence this, and the cost actually, uh, I already mentioned, and it's not just a simple cost of trading, like ticket cost or bid ask spread. Of course, all these are part of it. But rather, you know, to be in the market at all times, to have enough capital to take positions or take off positions. So anything that hinders, um, the, uh, the, the trading activities because of, let's say, um, the actual cost of ca- actually being in the market or actually the cost of collecting capital. I would all refer to that as actually cost of, of trading. <clears throat> risk certainly matters, and, uh, you know, um, if there's no risk, actually, you can just wait long enough to get the price you want. Um, there are other things that are also important. I would just want to mention them, although uh, I won't be uh, really um, including them in the uh, in analysis. The risk appetite matters, actually, if uh, the marginal trader has a very high risk tolerance, uh, then you'll be willing to provide a lot of liquidity. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, I want to mention that uh, the, the risk appetite here is not necessarily referring to how aggressive somebody will play a poker game, you know, over weekends, but rather the incentive structure a trader faces. And uh, that actually is very much determined by the incentive structure that each trader faces or, fa- or institution faces. <coughs> information asymmetry is certainly important, uh, as we all know, that, uh, you know, when you have a lot of information asymmetry between traders, the market tends to become less liquid. A good example of that would be used car market. You know, you just have a very hard time to figure out uh, the, uh, the quality of a used car, and therefore you don't see much of a liquidity in that market. There could be other frictions of uh, constraints, like borrowing constraints, uh, margin requirements, uh, short sale constraints, and so on. <clears throat> they can certainly affect the amount of capital available in the market at a given point in time, and therefore the liquidity. The other thing I really want to emphasize, actually, would be what I uh, would, would refer to as institutional rigidities. Uh, for example, a lot of institutions, at a given instant, they may not be able to jump in another market. Uh, they may be passive player in the market, Uh, So for that, actually, uh, we would infer that there's actually a cost for these uh, market players to to participate in the market. Certainly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, incentive structures faced by the institutions themselves, as well as people within the institution, uh, that actually matters quite a bit as well. Now, (coughs) having said all these costs, um, I want to emphasize that this is not just an academic point. Saying, "Well, there are these costs." What really matters is the actual magnitude of these costs. Actually, recently uh, <coughs> there's been quite a bit of study on sort of indirect costs of these uh, of, of this kind. Um, of course, the direct measure of these costs is actually uh, hard to come by. So here, I want to mention actually one study by Koval um, and Stafford, <coughs> in which they look at the following. They actually look at mutual funds. Who are forced to sell their holdings because the, uh, the ins- because investors are withdrawing capital from them. Okay? So you could argue that these are sales purely triggered by, by liquidity. There's no information. In other words, you know, the investors don't necessarily know that uh, uh, their holdings are not going to do well going forward. <clears throat> Had they known that, they probably wouldn't invest in mutual funds. Right? And uh, typically, these are funds that have underperformed persistently you now, I have to be a little bit careful about underperform persistently because if you've got a manager who can underperform the market consistently, that person is very valuable. I right? just have to keep him and watch out what he does and just, just do the opposite, you know, <laughs> 10 times. Uh, so, for whatever reason, you know, I wouldn't want to say they're, they're persistently underperforming, but you know, they have had have some bad years. And their investors start running away from them, they have to uh, sell uh, their shares. So what you can see is that when they sell the shares, the price, this is the quarter during which uh, they sell their shares, the price really gets depressed. What's surprising is that actually it took a long time for these shares to recover. And that is what's very surprising, because there's no information in these, and there are other funds who are holding these stocks, and yet they're not willing to step in not right away. And keep in mind, this is one quarter, so here we're talking about six, seven quarters beyond. So this seems to suggest that actually the capital moves fairly slowly. Actually, Ron uh, mentioned the notion of this sort the of weight of money. Seems like they, they don't move right away. You would expect that when these people sell, the price gets depressed. Nothing to do with the fundamentals, and other people would just be willing to just jump in and snatch it. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen right away. It takes some time, right? So this <coughs> would suggest that actually... Uh, it seems to be costly, actually, for people to jump into the market at an instant, even if some of these investors actually are pretty well-informed already in the market. Okay, you just um, the, the, the capital seems to move uh, slowly. <clears throat> I think I probably have two minutes, so I need to finish all my story uh, in two minutes. So I'll try to do that. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> let me actually describe to you just... Um, in a few words, the kind of uh, framework that actually we be using to analyze both the demand of liquidity and also the supply of liquidity. So the only thing I, I actually would assume is that it's costly to be in the market. Right? There are two kinds of costs you can pay. One is that you can pay a flow cost to be a dealer. This is when you, before you know your trading needs, you're going to pay some cost. So you're a market maker, like setting up a hedge fund or, you know, become a dealer in the market or you can act like a regular trader. You stay out of the market. Whenever you get hit by some shocks, you jump in, and then you trade. You have to pay some high cost to jump in right away, and presumably it's not necessarily something that you have to follow closely. The minute you actually are willing to make this assumption, namely, it's costly to be in the market, either ante or exposed, then immediately we're gonna have two uh, implications. First is that actually, there will be endogenous need for liquidity. Namely, even when people have offsetting shocks, that's what's driving trading, is the shocks actually add up to zero. That they, ideally they would like to enter into the market all at the same time and just trade it with each other without necessarily moving the price. When you turn on this cost, they are not going to be coming to the market at the same time, even though they are perfectly offsetting trading needs. Okay? And, uh, <clears throat> this is a fairly uh, general result. I'm just going to show you this one graph. Suppose that this is the the utility of holding a position, and this is the optimal. At the optimal, of course, your, your utility is flat. That's that's the peak. Okay. If there's no cost, whenever you're a little bit away from this, you're going to be trading. Okay, so you're going to trade right away. So that's why if you have two traders, one got a you know, negative hit, one got a positive hit, they will both trade right away, and the price won't move. And in other words, they're always going to be in the market. <coughs> However, if there's a cost, they're going to only trade infrequently. They're only going to be trade when they are farther away from the optimal. They're not not, not going to always trade um, constantly. Because of that, in general, your utility function of holding a position is asymmetric, so the the buyer and the seller would not have the same gain. So at some cost, one would jump in before the other. So just by introducing cost itself, the trades, are not going to be synchronized even though the trading needs are perfectly matched. Okay, so they're not going to come in the market at the same time. And also, you can show if the total exposure of the risk is positive, it's always the seller who jumps to the market first. Okay, so this basically immediately gives us this endogenous need for liquidity, namely the order imbalance, which first is always on the selling side. Second, it doesn't happen that often. Why does it happen that often? Because there's a cost to be in the market. So when the shocks are small, people are not going to come in. Only when the shock is large enough, they can overcome the cost and jump into the market. When that happens, it's unbalanced and it's also big. And also, it's on the selling side, so it's going to depress the prices. So that's the demand of uh, liquidity. And then we can also look at the supply of liquidity. Uh, of course, this non-synchronization, non-synchronization in trades would create incentive for people to pay the ex-ante cost to be in the market. Whenever there's order imbalance, they're going to bridge that. They buy low, sell high, you know, when the, when a new buyer comes in, and they make profit on that. So that determines the supply of liquidity. So I have zero limit. So let me actually... Uh, zero zero minute. So let me actually uh, skip my discussion on... Uh, the, the liquidity... Huh? A couple of minutes, but... Huh? A couple of minutes, couple of minutes okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I have to... <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> in terms of impact on, on, the, on the market, uh, we can show actually with reasonable trading needs calibrated to the volume in the market, actually very small cost could actually induce a pretty large uh, price discount some, you know, 30, 40 percent. So this suggests that actually liquidity it matters, actually, in terms of affecting prices. And here's a graph showing the dynamics of prices, and this is sort of what I was describing before. I'm taking out the fundamental piece of the price, just looking at the impact of liquidity, and this is the distribution of the impact of liquidity on prices. And you can see that's always negative, and actually peaks, you know, at some finite uh, magnitude. And this is due to the fact that the liquidity need, or the order imbalance, occurs infrequently, but when it happens, it's always negative, and also large in magnitude. Um, whoops. The, uh, what I want to actually come back to talk, talk about is actually uh, policy implications. It turns out that when you actually go through analysis, you will easily, uh, right away, you will find that actually trading and market making actually uh, creates externalities. For you to be in the market to trade, it creates positive externalities. Why? You're actually going to provide the benefit to your counterparties. If you choose to become a market maker, you also create externalities because you're going to be there taking uh, the other side when uh, there's a need for liquidity. And because of these externalities, uh, the market actually fails to provide efficient level of liquidity. And this uh, creates room for for policy. So, uh, you know, we can actually examine uh, various... um, sorts of policy implications. For example, we can look at spot injection of liquidity, Namely, when the query need is high, we're just gonna put in, inject the query. For example, by lowering uh, you know, uh, borrowing costs. We can actually show that this is not always welfare improving. Actually, there are cases where this could, be make, things, could make things worse. Why? Because if the central banks are always providing liquidity on the spot, that's gonna reduce the incentives for people to put aside capital to make the market. So total level of liquidity supply, ex ante on average, could actually be lower, which could uh, cause uh, substantial welfare loss. <clears throat> on the other hand, the coordinated effort—if on the spot you force everybody to go in the market, okay, even though they individually they don't want to do that—that that actually could be welfare improving because that actually helps to create uh, more liquidity, and also people have to pay that cost, so it will not, in, you know, affect the ex ante uh, incentive to become market makers. And also, you know, to, let's say, have designated market makers actually could uh, potentially improve uh, the, uh, the efficiency in liquidity supply. <clears throat> so due to time constraint, let me actually uh, stop here. Uh, in terms of policy implications, of course, the big challenge is that how do we calibrate these things? How do we quantify these things? All I've argued here is that, you know, all these are possibilities. So under certain scenarios, it would be optimal to implement these strategies. Under other scenarios, it actually wouldn't be suboptimal. But, you know, when you look at a particular market condition, how do we figure out where we are? And that certainly is something that, uh, you know, uh, I don't have an answer for. Okay. Let me just wrap up. I guess uh, <coughs> what I was hoping to, uh, <coughs> to bring about is that, you know, the, uh, the importance of liquidity uh, in terms of its impact, both on um, um, the, the, uh, the level of asset prices and also on the stability of the market and the, the, uh, the efficiency of the market, and uh, by looking at both the, uh, the demand and supply of liquidity uh, in a sort of unified framework, it will allow us to actually to look at various driving forces uh, and hope- hopefully would also allow us to identify certain efficiencies in the market, and hopefully that actually could provide some basis for uh, policy discussions as well. Let me uh, okay. stop here, sorry. Okay,
0: thank you very much. All right. So let's uh, just take uh, maybe 10 minutes of questions. So there is a microphone. You guys can pass it around and. Uh, if-
2: Uh, Professor, could I ask you if you've looked at two specific areas in terms of liquidity? Uh, the first is the effect of, um, uh, of uh, track of funds in the sense that you looked at your mutual funds and you saw that it took some time to recover. And you said, well, look, there's a market opportunity here. But a tracker fund wouldn't regard that as a market opportunity. A tracker fund would say, actually, the amount of money I have to invest in these stocks, which now form a smaller part of the capitalization of the market is less, I might actually exacerbate that so that you're not looking at an entirely rational assessment of value, but a trading strategy which might have a different uh, impact. And secondly, I wonder what work you've done on the experience in Japan where you have... You talked about the speed with which markets fall. Well, of course, the Japanese market fell rather more slowly and was rather less transitory in its fall, in the sense that even today we're looking at a a level for the Japanese market of about 40% of the high point of the Nikkei in 1990. So over 17 years, that's... I don't know how long-term, you think, but that's not very transitory as far as I'm concerned. But also the implications of apparent liquidity because just like in 1929 and not very similar to 1987, you had a situation in the Japanese market where a lot of the liquidity was provided by gearing and borrowing and, in fact, you had external liquidity provided by the property market in Japan which provided additional liquidity for the share market which then provided additional liquidity for the property market so that, in fact, the actual amount of liquidity as opposed to uh, shall I say geared liquidity was very much less? Have you looked at those as impacts on on the liquidity issues?
1: Thank you uh, the uh, the first question I think that you 're absolutely right actually um, when you look at these quote unquote opportunities, uh, they may or may not be opportunities depending on you know which uh, what kind of investor actually you're looking at but in some sense uh, that is sort of what you know I would categorize as um, institutional rigidities in the sense that even though these might be opportunities, but because of these constraints that actually they cannot, um, you know, get into these. Uh, if we were to sort of relax them, these constraints, you know, given that nowadays if you make, so, quote unquote, the alpha portable, uh, they might be able to do that. Okay? But, you know, with the constraints, uh, they may, may not be too. So in that sense, actually, it is sort of part of the, the constraint I would like to include here but what 's puzzling about this is that if you look at these stocks you 're right that it 's not everybody you know uh, can take advantage of these constraints, but some mutual funds should should be able to now that 's not totally clear. You could say that i 've already got you know let 's say five percent in this stock, even though it 's i don 't want to do that anymore, and uh, maybe that 's why that's, we see more you know hedge funds moving in that in that domain um, so it 's also in that sense that I was uh, suggesting that actually hedge funds are very much so in the business of providing liquidity. But your point is well taken that, uh, um, you know, it's not necessarily an opportunity to, you know, um, to, to a certain, let's say, uh, kind of investors. <coughs> uh, coming back to your your second question, I think that I, I didn't mean to su- suggest that the liquidity is driving everything. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, you, I, the, the decision distinction I was hoping to draw is that um, the, uh, the impact of liquidity on asset prices hopefully is hopefully transitory because if it's driven by the slow mobility of capital, eventually the capital would move in and therefore drive away uh, the price uh, deviations. However, if it's a fundamental um, if it's a, you know, sort of fundamental shock, then of course the, the change will be permanent um, and then it doesn't uh, have to be transitory uh, at all. I think what would be interesting is to actually look at the uh, the interaction between these two. Early on, I mentioned that actually uh, if due to liquidity reasons we see this large dislocation of, uh, of, of, of prices and uh, if it's long enough, of course, it's going to have real effects uh, and then that would turn itself into a more permanent uh, kind of impact. Um, I don't have a sort of a good story <laughs> yet about sort of how these two Actually, interact with with each other, and uh, what it focused more on is actually sort of on the on the financial side, uh, without paying too much attention on the interaction between the, the financial side and and the real side. Um, I haven't personally haven't done much uh, analysis of the uh, the you know Japanese market and Japanese economy yeah. uh, as well. I think that you know what you describe is actually sort of uh, you know quite sensible uh, kind of description of the uh, of of the experience. Um, High, you know higher real estate prices early on certainly um, made capital you know very um, very easy for them and uh, yeah. as a result actually probably a lot of bad investments were made and uh, if that was done there's nothing <laughs> later on you know by providing the credit to turn these bad assets into good assets um. yeah. uh, for, uh, so, uh, there's a
0: microphone Professor Wang, um, I wonder if you'd care to comment on the contribution you believe that private equity is making to the liquidity and efficiency of capital markets? Uh,
1: <clears throat> the, uh, I think that it's sort of, you know, there are um, two kind of uh, angles I can see. Um, one is that um, in terms of actually providing additional source of, you know, of, of funding, um, certainly, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, I guess, I don't know whether or not, sure, your question is about whether or not actually by taking some of the uh, the uh, public companies private, uh, what the implications are there. And uh, uh, I'm not quite sure, actually, <laughs> to be frank, what to say about that. Um, on one hand, it's probably not good for the, uh, for the liquidity, you know, in the, um, in the, uh, the in the market for traded assets, uh, because the whole process is actually make them illiquid. Um, but you know, li- liquidity is also it's also, um, it's also um, a kind of uh, two-sided um, <coughs> sword because uh, sometimes you know uh, to be too liquid actually would not necessarily be a good thing, and you can certainly. Think of many examples. For example, uh, think about, let's say, mutual funds being open-ended. And that's very liquid. because People can liquid it any time they want. But because of that, actually, yeah. uh, you know, it would make their performance suffer because there are certain uh, assets that uh, would, uh, illiquid assets that uh, could offer good returns, but because of the liquidity uh, condition they have to meet, they may not be able to take advantage of that. And you certainly sort of see that on the uh, on the hedge, funds, hedge fund side, that... Uh, to have gates and lockups in place so that uh, they can actually have uh, liquidity available to them when they need it. Uh, it's actually a big part of uh, of their uh, their opportunity. I sort of remember actually um, talking to some of the. Um, uh, the the, for the partners of LTCM, you ask them what the, uh, the advantage they had over other hedge funds, and uh, they all point to the name of their fund, the LTCM, that, that we have capital locked up for a long periods of time, so they are not liquid. So we can take advantage of these uh, you know these opportunities other people can In particular, when the spreads, let's say convergence trades, when the spread widen, we lose money. Uh, what we can do is actually double our bets rather than actually uh, you know closing our positions. Um, I guess a little in, in retrospect. In retrospect, I guess it was a little bit uh, surprising to see them to return their capital, uh, you know, uh, by the end of '96. Uh, 90, uh, because being a, you know, being a liquidity provider, you better make sure that you have a lot of liquidity in place. Um, but so I guess you know I don't have a, a sort of good answer to that. I think you know has sort of pluses and minuses. The question is sort of how do you really quantify them? To actually, make the trade-off. Uh, I really don't have a good answer to that.
2: Uh, yes, please go ahead. Uh, So, could I ask you uh, to make a comment about the, the sort of optimal market structure, the extent to which, let's say, screen-based trading versus open outcry or trading post systems will have an effect in terms of price shocks? Uh, clearly, with the with the notion of sort of a- asymmetric information. The other thing I-, I wondered if you could clarify. Maybe I, I was being sort of slightly thick, but. In terms of one of your central points, you were saying that as risk increases, sellers always appear before buyers. And I just wondered if you could clarify that for
1: me. Okay, so let me uh, start with the easy one first. (laughs) So uh, what what I was showing here is that if they... Imagine actually, you know, the shocks, because what drives trading are really sort of idiosyncratic shocks, because if it's an aggregate shock, the price would just adjust. There's no necessary reason for people to trade. So people only trade when they're different. So they could be either different in, you know, their risk tolerance or in their views or some other things. So in that sense, it's sort of due to this idiosyncratic, uh, these uh, differences. Now, when you look at that chart, if you trade infrequently, then uh, in general actually you would have this asymmetry um, even though you have offsetting trading needs so you' always be either the buyer and the seller who jump to the market uh, to start with now when you actually also assume that there's sort of average risk exposure for just the average um, market participant then it's always a seller the reason is the following knowing that you're always you're not be able you you're unable to trade continuously you would whenever you get hit by certain, some of these shocks, you know that you're going to be bearing these shocks for a while, because you're not going to be trading. So that effectively makes you more risk averse. Given that you already have some positive exposure, so the, 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 the optimal thing to do is actually to download anyway. On top of that, you get the positive exposure. So you're always going to be ahead of the, the buyers because of that. If you have a zero exposure, by the way, then actually the two would always be symmetric. Okay. But for markets like equities or, or fixed income, you know, you could expect that. You could sort of safely assume that on average the exposure is positive. But for derivatives, it's much less clear. Um, <coughs> coming back to your second question, I think actually um, even though within the model, I, you know, suddenly uh, it kind of describes, you, you can produce some predictions about what kind of market structure you would get. For example, here you would have two kind of structures. One is a dealer market where you have people who pay in this low cost ex ante, to become a market maker versus a different market structure in which nobody chooses to be a market maker. You just jump in uh, on the spot. And actually, there's nothing in between. Uh, and the reason is that there's this endogenous interaction between demand and supply. If there's not enough dealers, people are not gonna be in the market that often. In other words, even when they have trading need, they don't jump into the market right away because they, they know that you know, there will be nobody there. Or not enough people there, so because of that, actually, this they would come to the market less often. There would be less opportunity for the market makers, so you know fewer people would choose to be market makers. So this process could feed on itself. Eventually, end up with a situation more like a real estate market that you know you don't have dealers in there. You just whoever wants to buy and sell just jump into the market and look for each other. Now I think that. How, how, how do we bring that to the actual market structure? I think that's quite a, there's quite a bit of a gap. I, I still view it as a, a really uh, one of the challenging questions about, about liquidity. That is that we see this wide range of, you know, ways that the markets are organized. Um, you know, for fixing income kind of securities, mostly, although Europe is somewhat different, at least in the U.S., it's mostly OTC or dealer market rather than centralized. Um, while for equities, I guess, centralized markets seem to be, uh, you know, kind of winning, I guess, if you were to use that word. Um, so I assume that exactly as you said, the cost probably would be part of the factor, and also information and in symmetry will be part of the factor. the other, I assume, is actually also the amount of uh, capital that you have to have stand ready, um, which, you know, might be uh, easy to arrange for more liquid uh, assets with less information and in symmetry, why for, you know, assets with uh, less liquidity and more information and in symmetry. It may, may, may be harder to set up a huge amount of capital, actually, to uh, serve as, uh, as, as market makers. Um, but beyond that, I, you know, I, I don't think there's actually a good explanation as to exactly why uh, these uh, markets are organized in those ways, whether or not it was just a historic coincidence or it actually was something deeper than that. I, I, um, it, it is actually a challenging question.
0: Okay, so let's uh, maybe, given that we're a bit late, let's um, uh, go to the reception and then continue sort of the questions uh, there. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. Okay.